They each went to their own homes, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him, because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. This is word of the Lord. I keep going one more. Considering that's where our focus is this, this Lent. Jesus spoke to the people again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Will you all pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So that last little line, and it's kind of sneaky, it gets kind of clipped in, at least in this Bible and some of our Bibles, to another section. I was a little shocked to realize that this line from Jesus and John's gospel was attached to this story of Jesus in John's gospel. In some ways, Jesus' declaration, I am the light of the world, is so triumphant, it's so singular, it dwarfs its context. And like much of the Bible, it's so easy to remember that statement, it also makes it easy to forget. This is like when you have a vivid like facial memory of... you know, like at a party from 20 years ago, but you kind of forgot where that party was or why you were partying at all, but you can see the lines in someone's face and the expression that they made. That's what this passage kind of feels like for me. But quite the opposite of a party is happening here. In fact, there's a little bit of foreshadowing as Jesus shows up at Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives. I think there's a picture of modern day Mount of Olives Yeah, it looks something like that. This is foreshadowing on the same ridge in East Jerusalem where Jesus would later return and sweat blood at its foot in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the same spot where Jesus would also ascend to be at the right hand of the Father. So the Mount of Olives is a really important place. And Jesus had been holding court here. This is the one who we detailed last week is the the way, the truth, and the life. 
He's a teacher showing them the way, bringing them along the way, like any good teacher, inviting them and calling them to walk with him in the truth and the life. And Jesus, the way, truth, and life, sits down, it says, and teaches. It feels like um, sitting down is, is teaching in an unhurried and intimate and purposeful way. I'm not sure nowadays if, I, if, I, if you went into a classroom and you saw a teacher just like sit down, if that would gesture the sort of uh, a power and authority which sometimes we feel like I'm paying good money to learn from, right? Jesus is inviting them on this significant journey. But he's inviting them on a significant journey that's also rooted and grounded in the place that he's in, that he's teaching from. Seems like Jesus has a really impressive ability to gather an interested crowd. And in this story, I think it's notice, like notable to note that, that Jesus' very presence, his teaching, draws a crowd of difference. He's, he's not drawing all people who just agree exactly with him. And Jesus' teaching also kind of starts to till the soil and create a disturbance, not a little bit of conflict, when Jesus starts to teach. He, of course, came to, to not to do away with the old, but to fulfill it. And so I think he has a, a good hearing with kind of people committed to the old way because he's still tethered to it enough that they're starting to hear their vocabulary and they're starting to sense and see some of their hopes coming alive in Jesus. They, they're kind of pulled into the center of a Venn diagram, and when they get there, they start to meet some folks who they didn't anticipate meeting in the middle of that Venn diagram. You see, Jesus's illuminating presence is opening up this new space for also for people who were spun out or put out or sent out. Sinners and kind of, quote-unquote, all the wrong kinds of people who once weren't in the middle of this Venn diagram are now brought in. The ones who didn't fit in or the ones who walked with the limp, and sometimes that limp was the sort of thing that could only be attributed to someone's previous behavior. Who He brought in those who were legitimately stuck in cycles of damaging behavior, maybe from others or from themselves. He brought in the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death. And they were drawn to Jesus like moths to a flame. And here's the rub. When you get all these kinds of people together, something's kind of got to give. There's a lot of tension built up, and it has to release somewhere. The equations start to break down. The nice thoughts and the goodwill start to wear out. We often read this story of the legal experts and Pharisees bringing in this woman as kind of playing gotcha with Jesus. They're gambling with the lives of real people. Don't get me wrong, I think there's a big element of that. It's, it's not dissimilar to kind of the politics of leverage that we see mobilized in our everyday life. Uh, I think about like when, when people create lose-lose situations or, or zero-sum games like power plays. Like, think about like dropping 
um, asylum seekers off at Cape Cod or something like that, or, or heightening cruelty towards transgendered folk, many of whom are just literally caught in the middle and not trying to politicize their own existence. Or the, the way some of our leaders vacillate in their response to crises in, of addiction or of natural disaster, depending on whether or not it's gonna benefit them and their voting block. So we see some of that logic operating, even in Jesus' time, 2,000 years ago. These same logics of power, of leverage, are at play. If we put those malicious aims aside for just a minute, what if Jesus' hearers are just trying their best? This is maybe a good way to read scripture sometimes, is asking these questions and stepping over here and stepping over here and seeing if it looks the same and if it feels the same. What if these people are just trying their best? Imagine a case where they're experiencing some sort of revival, hearing Jesus' renewing words and taking them seriously. We've been hearing a lot about revival lately in the American church. But what if then they, they kind of get the consequences of this revival all wrong? Consider what it's like when you have all of the desire and all of the motivation to do something great, to do something good, to do something great for God, but you lack many of the moral resources to pull it off. Things can get sloppy really fast. Things can get hurtful. I wonder a bit if this scene isn't a bit of that. They've heard Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. In some ways, they found themselves in the crosshairs. They're deeply included, but they're also deeply implicated by their own need to repent, to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. This is the exact spiritual and emotional space of this Lenten season that we're still kind of towards the front end of. That we are deeply loved and deeply called into even more deep intimacy with God. Period. The God who created us, the God who is making all things new. And on Ash Wednesday, we were marked with ash because we are from dust to dazzling dust. God breathed dust. Some of us give up some things during this season. For some of us, it's the first time we've felt hunger pangs in a while when we fast. This is really uncomfortable feeling. It, oh, Noah's nodding. <laughs> the key challenge when you're doing this, don't drag others into your temporary and self-chosen misery, right? <laughs> but rather, the, the point of fasting is to offer your experience of weakness, of hunger, of dependence, of creatureliness. Offer it up to God. It, that those sorts of feelings and those, that sort of feeling of lack, that, that sort of feeling of insufficiency should connect you with the way others feel those things, maybe in different ways that you couldn't see or couldn't experience with them. Because so instead of, instead of that, often fasting can turn into like public hanger, like uh, being so hungry you're angry at someone. Or if you're actually kind of good at it and a little bit disciplined, fasting can turn into self-righteousness because you're, you're kind of better than you were at it and you're progressing. It feels like you've signed up for AP Honors Christianity rather than the remedial class. Do you see how 
quickly something good like fasting can turn into the very opposite of what it was meant for. Christianity, in some ways, is like always a remedial course. It's always going back to the start. It's always repenting and repenting, and it's always finding yourself in the, the loving embrace of a God who receives us back. So the religious elite bring a woman to Jesus who has been caught in the act of adultery. The law that Jesus has been opening up to them seems pretty clear. Punishment of death by stoning. This woman was to be lynched publicly for her promiscuity. The law was in place to make the community of God one that valued fidelity and intimacy and wouldn't disintegrate into abuse or shame, but would be the fertile ground for verdant relationships to grow both with God and with each other. To devalue these vows would be to jeopardize God's called out community, blessed to be a blessing to the world. So in their eyes, and we'll see in a sec, it's exactly their eyes, their vision, their ability to see that is the problem. In their eyes, this woman is a threat. And if they were going to take God's desire for a healthy community seriously, she needed to be eliminated. So goes their logic. Isn't it strange that the man or men she cheated with aren't also brought before Jesus? We've been doing this for 2,000 years, and this still happens in so many religious communities. So with their limited sight and their kind of uh, jaundiced imagination, they choose to cast a spotlight on this woman. It says they, quote, placed her in the center of their group. They centered her maliciously. They, 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 they weaponized light. I toyed with the idea of turning those LED spotlights on, but I don't know that I could like, do this. Um, but imagine that, right? When we, we then come to find out their motives for doing this, that they might confuse or accuse Jesus, the gospel writer John is not so generous with their motives. He strips away their plausible deniability. The next thing that happens is so curious, so weird, when we do our liturgy planning meetings and we talk about the scripture together, uh, this was one of the, the parts of the text where um, Meg and Toph and uh, Natasha are like, you should figure out why this happens. Go. <laughs> Look forward to figuring that out. Um, what is Jesus doing when he kneels down and starts writing in the dirt? What's he doing? You can come see me after and tell me what he's doing. Like, is he stalling? Is that what he's doing? Is he just stalling? Like putting a little more air into the room? Is he purposely creating a spectacle? Like weirdifying the situation? It strikes me, whatever he's doing, it's really significant, I think, that he is getting close to the ground. That he's getting close to the ground. You see, so often these conversations about other people's lives and their sin and their belonging start to hover above the ground and lose touch with the grit and the reality of things with flesh and blood and sweat and tears. Jesus doing this had to make them so uncomfortable. Maybe in doing so, it revealed something small in them, like that they're impatient, 
that they're unwilling to slow down. Maybe in doodling in the dirt, Jesus was replicating a process like a lot of practices of art making, a sign of hope, a sign of trust, in the fact that there are always more than two answers, even to really complicated and really difficult problems. Maybe the ground was just Jesus' scratch sheet as he kind of worked out the math of the multiple ways that this could go and some solutions that would kind of put them back on the, the path towards healing and intimacy and joy and collaboration and walking together with God. Jesus disarms them with his next words. He simultaneously heightens the requirement of the law and provides forgiveness and mercy. He says, whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. Then he commenced with another round of ground graffiti. I wonder if Jesus might be like the first artist activist, like the original Banksy, right, you know? Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Isn't there anyone left to condemn you? She said, no one, sir. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. In this one brilliant moment, Jesus saves her. Like, literally, Jesus saves her from death. But also, he saves her from sin. She meets Jesus, like we all do, uncondemned. Romans 8 1 and 2 says, so now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. She is being set free. She's deeply loved and accepted just as we are, even when we are good as dead in our sin. And then we are turned and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism class starts today. This is, this is what it's all about right here. What started out in this story as a potential murder scene winds up being a resurrection. She was freed, emancipated. She was freed from losing her life. She was freed from the last line of her life, her obituary, being about the things she actually did or even just the things other people thought of her. She was freed from that. She was freed for a future. I think what's an underreported part of this story is that in disarming these religiously zealous folks, Jesus was also saving them. He was saving them from having blood on their hands. He was freeing them. He was opening them up to walk in newness of life, aware of their own sin and their bloodthirst and their twisted desires to follow the God of their making. He's freeing them from the, the, the really like insanely exacting um, kind of cruelty of having to always be right. 
and even to have to exact violence or coercion in order to ensure what, that you get what you thought you need. It seems Jesus picked up right where he left off then with his lecture. Jesus spoke to the people again. He said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness anymore, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Light indeed. <laughs> but Jesus is a really particular, peculiar sort of light. You see, Jesus isn't the like, million candle watt spotlight that Pharisees were casting on this woman. I wonder if Jesus was kind of something more like a headlamp. Small, directional, unassuming, something that might equip us to see on this significant journey walking with Jesus in his illuminate, illuminating presence requires. A headlamp is like in Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Those psalms always hit different when they come out of Jesus' mouth. I think when we read back this story and do this this week, it's important to place ourselves in this narrative. Because in some sense, we're all the woman. Walking in darkness, being burned by the spotlight of condemnation for our sin. But we're also all the men around her, weaponizing our light and casting it on others while we remain in darkness. That's a, the awesome thing about spotlights is the person behind the spotlight doesn't have to, doesn't have to show their face, right? And we're ultimately all in and with Christ, an illuminating presence, the soft light of God's love, care, revelation, safety, forgiveness, mercy. It makes me wonder if we actually just kind of need all sorts of lights, but that we should be careful, particularly with the allure of that spotlight. Maybe we have a few kinds of default lights that we, we go to. Like maybe like a candle is a good default light. Super reliable. Power goes out, everyone goes back to the basics, right? A candle can abide. A candle can actually unassumingly light up a whole room. Also like a headlamp is probably a good default. It's humble, limited in scope, which instills a posture of trust that will have exactly the amount of light that we need for where we're going. And then if we need a little more, we can gather someone else with a headlamp to give us a little more of a panoramic view and have a good grasp of what's going on and where we're headed. Even though we're behind a headlamp, we're participating in it and we're, we're walking in that light so we don't have to hide in darkness or burn people with our light. That's homework. So go this week and think about the sort of light that you most often wield in your life. Which light, which light feels the best? Which is most useful? What light do you use when you feel most secure and at peace? And what light do you use when you are most tempted towards um, uh, like hiding or when you are fearful? There are all sorts of lights that can be used in all sorts of ways.
But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I think about the stark contrast in light um, just from a couple years ago in Charlottesville, Virginia. Something as piddly, and there's a slide with this contrast, Matt. Something as piddly as tiki torches wound up being used for, like, for terror, for this blood and soil march of hate. While just across town, a chorus of various clergy led by Reverend Sekiu started the chorus that is so infectious we sang today, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Fragile, childish chorus in the face of hate, like a weak elixir in the midst of a powder keg of conflict. I imagine the, how it sounded as just a few clergy and then it grabbed on to others' voices pulled back their memories from when they were a kid at camp, much like uh, Pastor Meg's Episcopal camp song, I want to be a child of the light, right? And, and, and maybe it brought them into something a little more simpler and smaller and more peaceful together. A little flickering candle in the midst of aggressive darkness. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, He's inviting us into this kind of light. He's inviting us to be seen by it. He's inviting us to examine our own sin in that kind of light. Jesus is inviting us to have fellowship in the light. A chapter later in John's Gospel, he reminds us that as long as he is in this world, he is the light of this world. So we must trust in that light and participate in it even when it feels really dim. Even when our light and the light of the church feels either entirely and aggressively too bright or so faint that we can't see. As long as Jesus is in this world, he's the light of this world. And he still is and he has pledged to be. In fact, our ongoing story ends in the book of Revelation, also referenced in that song. Revelation 21 says, look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. A little further down the page says, this city this new Jerusalem, this new creation doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory will be its light. Its lamp is the lamb. The nations, all the peoples, the nations, will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. I want to close... Um, just with a, a quote from uh, Dorothy Day, she wrote in the Catholic Worker uh, newspaper that she founded with Peter Morin. And um, she, she was writing this article and, and she, I was caught just by, she kind of, uh, Dorothy Day, if you know her, she, she goes hard, right? Like she's not shy and she has thoughts. Um, but at the end of it, she, she kind of pulled up a little and, and basically said like, I know it's frustrating, I know it's hard, I know when we look around, we don't see this. And so she says, it's hard to explain. It's difficult to make myself clear. 
If St. Paul, to whom Christ himself spoke, saw things through a glass darkly, how can I hope to make things clear to you? I've only tried to put down what I do understand, urging you, again, not to discredit Christianity because of the faults of Christians. Perhaps you will not see my point at all as you read this, but I pray that you too will be led by the Holy Ghost from darkness to light. Even the little light I see is light to me in my darkest days and hours. And I could not breathe or live without that light which I now have. The light of faith that has been given to me by a merciful God who is the light of this world. Y'all pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for pushing back darkness with light. We thank you for um, the trust that you have in us as the light of the world, and we thank you for being light to us. Lord, open our eyes when um, that light feels really bright. Um, Renew our vision so that we can see you at work in our lives and in our world. Uh, Make us humble, make us creative, make us hopeful together as we walk with you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.